I would say yes, investors today are compensated for the risks that they're taking. So I wouldn't say that the overall market today, emerging market fixed income, is expensive. I would say there's still some focus of value at the market level. But increasingly, the situation is one in which selecting the right credits, both on the corporate side and sovereign side, will define the winners. That was Ricardo Adroge, head of global sovereign debt and currencies. And this is Streaming Income, a podcast from Bearings. I'm your host, Greg Campion, and I'd like to welcome you to episode number one of season three of Streaming Income. We are back from our summer break and ready to go. Throughout this season, we will be bringing you in-depth conversations with experts on asset classes like EM debt, high yield, real estate, and more. Remember, if you'd like to receive our latest insights as soon as they become available, you can subscribe to the show by searching Streaming Income on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. On today's show, I spoke with Dr. Ricardo Adroge, head of Global Sovereign Debt and Currencies here at Barings. You may be familiar with him as he's been on the show already a number of times. Ricardo is the lead portfolio manager on the firm's EM Local Debt and EM Blended Total Return Strategies, and he also co-manages a variety of other EM debt strategies. Based in Boston, Ricardo spent time with Kabaizan Investment Group, Wellington Management, and the IMF, among others, before joining Bearings in 2013. The last time Ricardo was on the show was about six months ago in the last week of March, which was, of course, close to the height of the COVID-related market volatility. So in this conversation, Ricardo catches us up on what's happened in emerging markets since then, including how some EM economies have weathered the COVID storm better than others, and what factors are separating the relative winners from the relative losers, at least from an economic perspective. We spent the bulk of the discussion talking about Ricardo and team's outlook for EM debt really through two different lenses. The first is the ability for EM issuers to satisfy their debt obligations, given the current economic slowdown. And the second is the willingness of EM issuers to pay their debts, which is a really important and nuanced topic right now, especially given some of the restructurings that we've seen from countries like Ecuador and Argentina, and also some of the messaging coming out of international financial institutions like the IMF. Finally, we touched on the key factors that may drive markets over the next 12 months, including the U.S. election, of course, the global pandemic, and finally, developments in U.S.-China relations. So with that, please enjoy this conversation with Dr. Ricardo Adroge. All right, Ricardo Adroge, welcome back to Streaming Income. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to have you here. As always, you're a repeat guest. Um, and of course, the last time we spoke with you on this podcast was about six months ago. I think it was the last week of March and pretty close to the height of the uh, market volatility that we were seeing um, at that time. Uh, we were seeing a lot of kind of indiscriminate selling in markets. And I remember talking to you about you know some of the value that you were starting to see, but really it was it was a pretty volatile time. So catch us up if you don't mind to start here. Just what's been going on broadly speaking in emerging markets and maybe in their real economies um, over the last six months, and maybe how that's kind of been similar or different to what's been going on in developed markets during that time. 
Great. Emerging markets, much like developed market economies, have shut down on the back of the pandemic. We, from very early on, when we talked back in March, we thought that this type of crisis wasn't necessarily different for developed market and emerging markets. And I think if I have to look back and I say, well, what did we get right? Uh, it's probably that. And where we got lucky is that uh, central banks in developed markets have been very aggressive in accommodating. Uh, being right on the first one on emerging markets not being very different from developed markets in terms of the COVID-19 crisis wouldn't have been enough for emerging markets to come out of this crisis um, as well as they have, I would say. Okay, so if we talk about some of the price action that we've seen in emerging markets, um, tell me what you've seen in places like the rates markets, currencies markets as well. Because I remember when we spoke uh, six months ago, you were looking at the sovereign debt issues of countries like Russia and Indonesia. And at the time, you were telling me, again, this was kind of at the height of the stress, but at the time, you were telling me that um, what you were seeing in terms of spreads was was telling you that that they were discounting uh, default probabilities that were 10, 20 times what you thought was actually realistic. So how's that kind of played out over the last six months in terms of price action? So within fixed income emerging markets, we have, uh, let's call it three types of assets. One are the fault risk, which is hard currency bonds, US dollar bonds for the most part, that come in the form of uh, corporate bonds and sovereign bonds. And then we have local rates and local exchange rates. All of them sold off quite quickly, very rapidly within the space of two to three weeks. Uh, now, within that, on the hard currency side, on the sovereign side, then we have split between investment grade and high yield. Now, investment grade countries sold off from, let's say, 150 basis points in spread prior to COVID to close to 400 basis points in spread on average. And those are the countries that you were mentioning, Russia, Indonesia, <clears throat> Mexico. And so those countries um, have large domestic markets to borrow from and have floating currencies and have international reserves. So the risk of default in those countries is really minimal. And so we thought that those countries were already a really uh, great buy opportunity back then. And that's exactly what you mentioned. We perceive those to be 10, up to 20 times the actual priority of the fault. The spreads were paying up to 20 times the priority of the fault. And those were the bonds that came back the fastest. Uh, now, we are very close to fair value in those bonds. Uh, fair value doesn't mean that there's no value. It means that there is value, but there, we don't perceive that to be where uh, investors will be making the difference. What do some of the yields on some of those look like today, some of those investment-grade countries, approximately? They are around 180 basis points. So that's in spread. In, in yield, um, one is talking about uh, about 3%, give or take, uh, for a 10-year bond. Now, the high-yield component is the one part. Uh, high-yield um, comes in hard currency, obviously, is default risk. High-yield corporates have started to come down, the spreads, have widened, but they have come back, I would say, almost two-thirds of the way, but there's still some value there. On the sovereign side, they have come back about 50% of the way, and so there's less clear value in there. There's less value, we think, on the high-yield sovereign space because it's a case-by-case -case basis. We need to distinguish between those that can pay and those that will pay. 
Okay. And then we have the rates, the interest rate cycle. A lot of these countries have seen big drops in interest rates following the developed market drops in interest rates. There's still a distance between local rates in emerging markets and developed local rates that to our eyes, they more than compensate for inflation risk. So we see still value in local rates across emerging markets. And the one asset class that had hardly come back is currencies. So despite the fact that commodity prices have come back, uh, currencies have yet to come back. And I would say they have recovered maybe 20% of the sell-off. So let's talk about you know what we expect to see going forward. And I know that when you are analyzing the debt of emerging market countries, you not only need to think about what is their ability to pay or satisfy their obligations, but you need to assess their willingness to pay as well. So let's talk about both of those because I think those are really critical when it comes to uh, identifying what the path forward uh, looks like and where where value can potentially exist and where where there's you know potentially very large risks. So let's start on the ability. So this is what I would consider more the traditional fundamental analysis. As you look across the universe of sovereign issuers, how would you kind of broadly characterize the ability of these countries to satisfy their obligations? And then maybe what specifically are you and the team looking at to lead you to that conclusion? At some level, ability to pay is a relatively simple concept because all an analyst needs to do is to assess whether the country has enough cash to pay the upcoming obligations. So in a nutshell, in the near term, if one looks at the international reserve position of the country, how much international reserves the country has, and looks at how much the country will have to pay over the next, let's say, 12 months, then one could very clearly see whether the country will be able to pay or not. Now, that becomes a little bit harder as you introduce dynamics to that because as you want to uh, forecast whether the country will be paying over the next five years, you cannot only use the level of international reserves the country has now. You need to also think how those that stock of international reserves, primarily U.S. dollars or some euros, uh, will evolve with the economic dynamics of that country. Um, but in a nutshell, it's always the same measure. is Does the country have enough foreign currency to pay for its foreign currency obligations? Uh, and that's when we think about default, that's the type of default. is hard currency, non-issued by the emerging markets. Um, and studying the, the dynamics of the economy is what gives us the confidence that over time the country will be sustainable enough and will have enough reserves to pay for debt. Now, there's a few things that have happened. The stock of international reserves change by the normal dynamics of the economy, but also by policy actions. Specifically in the case of Turkey, we have seen that Turkey a few years back, let's say three years back, had a very large stock of international reserves in the range of hundreds of billions of dollars. And the amount of money that was coming due that Turkey had to pay was in the tens of billions of dollars every year. So that simple calculation would say Turkey had 13, 15, 20 years of debt payment capacity. Well, the government has been using those reserves to pay down or to protect the currency valuation because they didn't want the currency to depreciate. As a result, Turkey went from being an investment-grade country to a very uh, low-rated high-yield country. Hmm, interesting. Okay, so what else, what else besides reserves? You mentioned you're monitoring the economies. So it's, it's you know, looking at things like tax revenues, the level of interest rates uh, would impact the ability to service their debt. So what, what are some of the other factors that you're monitoring? And then maybe, 
You know, I know it's hard to make just like broad generalizations across emerging markets, but what are some countries that are looking pretty solid on these metrics based on your analysis? And what are some others that maybe are are looking, you know, in a little more difficult situation? So the way we tend to look at countries is we assess the evolution of international reserves through time by looking at whether the country is competitive or not, whether the exchange rate is at a level that will favor exports over imports, so that will favor a current account surplus or not, whether the country has the ability to collect taxes or not, and how much, whether the country has the ability to grow or not, because that will de- determine how much the country can save from those tax collections, uh, whether the country can use those reserves at the government level, because those reserves sometimes are reserves that belong to the people, and some countries have different ways to basically use or not use and have legal implications in the way of using or not using those reserves. Um, so at the end of the day, it's a full understanding of the economy and how the economy evolves to assess whether the country as a whole will be able to keep their savings and increase their savings over time to make the debt payments possible. Um, and everything that goes into that, including obviously ESG indicators in terms of uh, whether the country has a proper governance, whether the country is using the, the resources that it has, both obviously financial resources, but also social resources and environmental resources appropriately. Those are all factors that are going to the decision whether the country will be able to pay the debt. Now, when we look at countries today, there's countries that from, for example, from a governance indicators would rank really poorly like Russia. But from a financial perspective, it's one of the strongest countries in the world. Uh, has a very, very large level of international reserves. Uh, they have never used their international reserves inappropriately. Uh, and they don't have a lot of uh, government debt. So from a sustainability perspective, financial sustainability perspective, is extremely strong. Other countries that are more balanced in terms of ESG indicators and macro indicators are countries like Mexico. It's a country that in ESG indicators is not as bad as Russia, especially on the governance indicators. Uh, and it's more middle of the road for an emerging markets from ESG indicators. And financially speaking, is quite strong. Not obviously as strong as Russia, but fairly strong. Finally, to pick a country in Africa, South Africa is a country that is under a lot of stress. Uh, it's a country that um, has been unable to grow for the past few years. Uh, that has weakened its uh, public finances quite a bit. But even in the case of South Africa, the private sector seems to have been doing the adjustment. So the question in the case of South Africa will be, will the government be able to convince the private sector to keep the money in South Africa to fund the government until the, the country gets on its feet or not? Got it. Okay. Well, that's that's a good overview. I know it's I know it's difficult to again make broad generalizations ab- about emerging market countries' ability to pay, but it's helpful to have that little window into the way that you and the team are trying to assess that. How about the other side of the equation? So we talked about ability to pay. Let's talk about willingness uh, to pay. And, and this is maybe not what you would consider traditional fundamental analysis, but it's analysis that needs to be done regardless, especially given some of the developments recently in the world. So maybe if you wouldn't mind just catching us up on you know, what's been going on with some of the international financial institutions like the World Bank and IMF around the messaging that they've been giving to some of the emerging markets with regards to what they should be doing regarding satisfying their debt obligations or not. What's kind of going on there? They've actually been um, trumpeting the idea that debt sustainability is very important and 
restructuring the debt should be part of the debt sustainability exercise uh, for any country. Uh, that has taken a very long time, back into the late 1990s, early 2000s. A country like Argentina was considered to have waited too long to default, that had made such a big effort to pay the debt that the implication for the economy was too negative. The recession was too large, the unemployment was too high. It wasn't socially acceptable to have such a large crisis simply because the country decided to try to continue paying the debt. Well, it seems that the pendulum has swung a little bit too far the other way. Carmen Reinhardt is now the uh, head of the uh, World Bank Research Department. Uh, they are trumping the idea that emerging market debt in lots of cases is too high. And they're looking primarily, based on their work, to debt to GDP ratios. Debt to GDP ratio is one indicator, or primarily when we look at solvency, we tend to focus not on debt to GDP ratios. We tend to focus on the ability of the countries to keep current on their debt. And so debt to GDP ratios could be a very misleading indicator because some countries can borrow at very low rates, and so they can accommodate much higher uh, debt to GDP ratios, and some countries cannot. Now, that points into the direction of if the international community believes that emerging markets have debt ratios that are too high because they're looking potentially at the wrong indicator, then countries that run into liquidity problems and are forced to go to those international institutions to borrow money from them to accommodate, which is why those institutions were created. The IMF was created specifically with that in mind, when countries run into difficulties to borrow from the IMF. Uh, and if they go to the IMF and the IMF says, well, because your debt to GDP is too high, then you'll have to restructure your debt. That could create a self-fulfilling prophecy. Investors like us, looking at a country like Ghana, based on macroeconomic indicators, a country like Ghana should be able to sustain, should be able to pay for its debt, even when the debt service is high and the debt ratio is relatively high. But it's a country that has a lot of growth potential. It's a country that has been managed quite well, uh, that has a very nice mix of production uh, in terms of oil, gold, cocoa um, is a very stable democracy in Africa. Now, a country like Ghana, the finance minister, has published um, in the Financial Times an article stating that they should, combine with all other emerging markets, suspend debt payments to face the COVID-19 crisis. Well, that in itself creates a great uncertainty on the mind of investors because they say, well, while they could be able to pay based on all our analysis and ability to pay, then the finance minister himself is saying they may choose not to pay. And they're getting basically the support of some national financial institutions, which in itself says, well, if a country runs into potential needs, then run away as an investor. Because if they actually have to go to the IMF and the World Bank, then they may be asked to restructure. And that's exactly to some extent what happened with Ecuador. They were not asked. Uh, to restructure, but they saw that the international financial institutions saw with good light, and so they went for the restructuring, and more specifically, Argentina, a country that under all our metrics was able to pay the debt, but the government changed signs, and in order to punish the previous administration, they came out saying that they needed to restructure the debt. And the IMF was very quick in accepting that restructuring because the IMF had become a big creditor to Argentina. And if Argentina didn't pay the other creditors, was likely to have more money to pay the IMF. 
that's a zero-sum game that some of the international financial institutions are falling into. Okay. Now, if you are an investor in this asset class and you are concerned about this trend, right, and you have institutions like the IMF basically encouraging some countries to restructure their debt, um, how can you get comfortable with uh, investing in the space? And is there sort of a counterintuitive uh, opportunity here, potentially? So I wonder if, for instance, you may see spreads and yields rise because of this um, additional risk factor. Um, and you might see you know, fund flows at least not coming into the asset class because of this. Is that an opportunity? So how, how are you thinking about that, generally speaking? It is probably the hardest not to crack uh, to decide whether a country has the willingness to pay uh, because it's not related to any clear macro indicators or ESG indicators. Let me give you an example. A country like Venezuela was going into a dictatorship uh, under the current administration of Maduro. And despite that, they consider paying their debt obligations to be top priority. So it's not true that the democratic government is more willing to respect the rule of law, which one would have thought that somebody that internally respects the rule of law because they have respect for elections, they have respect for uh, changing government, they have respect to for the rules in general, then the debt is one of those rules that they would want to uh, abide by. Um, the case of Venezuela proves that that's not the case. The same thing with Russia. Russia had always paid its debts, uh, has a very strong position and you have countries that are more democratic, as I mentioned before, Ecuador or Argentina, um, that are not as willing to pay the debt. So it's not a very simple relationship between ESG or macroeconomic indicators. So as an analyst, um, what we do is basically we look at the history of the country, the importance that historically the country has given to fulfilling their obligations, uh, not just debt obligations, but in general, uh, whether the country responds to some kind of rules that they respect on a consistent basis, and what the countries are stating. Uh, that's why I mentioned the Ghanaian finance minister stating publicly that they wanted to restructure them. So today, for example, we consider a country like El Salvador or a country like Bolivia or a country like Angola, countries that are strongly committed to paying the debt. And running into difficulties would only mean that they will have to be pushed really hard uh, to default. Now, mind you, pressure from international financial institutions, if it exists, doesn't necessarily mean that the country will have to default. In here, I'll give you another example. Latvia in 2008-9 uh, got a lot of pressure from international financial institutions to devalue the currency, which is another type of contract that countries have, a fixed exchange rate in this case. Uh, and at the time, it was a major crisis, and Latvia resisted all uh, pressures and kept their currency fixed. Uh, so distinguishing which countries will be able to sustain that pressure is basically the, the hardest and the more fun part of our daily work, I would say. There's obviously so much to consider. I mean, I think with, when it comes to the willingness to, to satisfy their debt obligations, there's obviously the, the reputational um, angle as well and the thinking about access to capital markets um, in the future that I would imagine plays a role um, there as well. So as you think about all of the the risks that you need to navigate, not only COVID, but 
you know, the the long-term economic implications of it. And as we were just discussing, even the willingness um, of some of these, you know, countries to satisfy their debt. Tell me what you are seeing in terms of value. So I'm curious if you feel like in today's markets, investors are being adequately compensated for some of these risks. And maybe, again, that's that's hard to make a broad sweeping statement, but I'd be curious to hear that. Broadly speaking, I would say yes. Investors today are um, compensated for the risks that they're taking. So I wouldn't say that the market, the overall market today, emerging market fixed income is expensive. Um, I would say there's still some focus of value at the market level. Um, but increasingly, uh, the situation is one in which selecting the right credits, both on the corporate side and sovereign side, um, will define the winners. Um, now, when we look at today's markets, we find a country like Brazil to be one of the most attractive investment destinations. Um, Brazil is a country that has been having a lot of bad press on ESG indicators, particularly environmental indicators. The perception is that Brazil is not doing enough to protect the rainforest of the Amazon. Uh, and a lot of investors have decided to pull out of Brazil. Some of them have pulled out because of the rainforest. Some of uh, investors have pulled out because the interest rates in Brazil have come down a lot. And therefore, investors in the past used to have Brazil because it was a high yielder in local markets. Uh, now they don't have that incentive anymore. To give you a sense, rates before used to be in the 12%, 14%. That's only four or five years ago. And now they're in the 2%. So it's a very different environment. Uh, our perception is different. Uh, we think that, yes, there's some things that the government has not done great based on the reports that we have seen. But it is something that the government is working at trying to improve the Amazon uh, in particular. And from a macro perspective and from a um, governance perspective, the macroeconomic perspective and the governance perspective, the type of governance structure that Brazil as a country has, has a very well and strong functioning Congress that counterbalances the presidency, a presidency that is independent and Supreme Court and court system that is independent. Uh, all of that to us is very, very important when we decide which type of country we decide to invest in, especially one like Brazil that nowadays uh, is showing good spreads, uh, high local interest rates. The 2% that I mentioned before is a short-term interest rate. The longer-dated rates are in the 6% or so. Um, and a currency that has been uh, very weak on the back of very, very large outflows that I mentioned before. So Brazil today appears to us to be one of the most attractive destinations. If we're right, we think that Brazil will be, in 2021, the fastest growing emerging market economy in the world, um, more than China, more than India. Other countries uh, that we find attractive are some smaller countries. A country like Bolivia is a country that we think is a country that has been relatively well managed, or a country like Guatemala is a country that has been relatively well managed. Um, as I mentioned before, a country like Angola although the problem is Angola does have a debt problem uh, and it's very dependent on oil prices. So the recent move in oil prices that has come down again to around 40 puts another pressure on, on a country like Angola. And what's the kind of spread premium versus some developed market debt look like on some of these countries that you're mentioning? So uh, in the case of Brazil, we're talking about 250 basis points in spread. 
um, give or take, depending on the part of the curve. In the case of um, Bolivia, we're talking about twice that much, about 500 basis points. In the case of Angola, uh, around 700 basis points. So given that interest rates in developed markets in the U.S. have come down so much and they're in the very low single digits, let's call it 1% for simplicity, uh, a spread of five is five times the annual yield in the US. So it's a very, very large level. So so for investors who are searching for yield, of course, there's still yield on offer in emerging markets, uh, but obviously you need to navigate them carefully given all the risks that we've um, discussed um, up till now. Um, what else, just as we finish up here, Ricardo, what else is you look at the next, you know, the remainder of this year and then you look out through 2021, what else is just on your radar in terms of you know what you're watching to that may swing things one way or another? I'm curious if things like the obviously the election here in the U.S., the you know development of COVID, um, China's economic growth, you know some of those factors or situations. What what what's jumps out at you as kind of being the most impactful drivers uh, next call it twelve months? I would say all of them are. Um, Potentially, the, the biggest one still is COVID. Number one, there's not going to be going back to normal. There's no normal or back to normal anymore, we think, uh, even if there's a vaccine. Um, there's a lot of pressure on all countries and all companies and industries and individuals to basically find uh, improved and different ways to uh, adjust. And so that's a huge uh area that we need to analyze on the different countries and different companies, how the different companies and countries adjust to the new reality. But more immediately, as the countries adjust, whether there's going to be a second wave, whether the lockdowns will be extended, whether the the economic uh, recovery will plateau uh, and will slow down again. Uh, Related to that, whether the uh, developed market countries have a lot of uh, willingness and Ability, I think, is almost um, unlimited from a monetary policy perspective, from a pure ability to create currency and reserves. So the Fed and the ECB can basically print as much as they want, but politically, there seem to be limit to that. There is a limit to how fiscally expansive developed markets can be. Uh, Again, from an economic perspective, doesn't seem to be the, the key constraint. When countries borrow negative interest rates, uh, there's no real constraint to expand fiscally as long as they can borrow negative rates. Uh, so COVID is to us the most important one, the most important concern, how we come out of it, lockdowns and whatnot. Policy actions by developed markets, whether they start pulling back or not, both on the fiscal and monetary side. Uh, the U.S. election, uh, we have no idea how it's going to turn out. Uh, we got scarred. As time, as emerging markets, the, the big, big moves following the last presidential election in the U.S., obviously that's a very high risk. And the relationship between the U.S. and China are obviously are unlikely to improve. So that negative trend in which the world has been going from an integration perspective is likely to continue. Our take is that uh, the fight between the U.S. and China, if you want to call it that, is unlikely to result in a, a crisis in China. And therefore, with China doing economically well, that's a really very important support for emerging markets. 
Um, and that's basically our base case scenario on China. If we get that wrong, obviously, that will be a very major negative implication for emerging markets. Okay, so final thoughts here. Uh, we've talked a lot about what's going on in emerging markets. This has been great to get us caught up. Anything you'd leave investors with today? There's a lot of risks on the horizon, but also there's opportunity, as you've mentioned, in, in a variety of places. Anything you would leave people with today as they think about navigating the next 6, 12 months, 2 years in, in emerging markets? The message is uh, emerging markets is a very, very vast Asset class, there's plenty of opportunities. Investors that do not shy away of putting the effort into looking for them, find them. And that's basically what we focus on. Uh, work hard, uh, turning every stone, understanding every country, every corporate, um, and selecting the good from the bad. Uh, there's plenty of opportunities. There's lots of risks, but with risks come plenty of opportunities. Uh, and having a team that devotes 90 plus percent of the time to doing that um, for our clients is basically what has been able to give us the confidence in holding the right, what have been so far, the right positions. All right, Ricardo. Well, thank you so much for joining me. Let's not wait uh, six months before we have you back on the show, but uh, appreciate all your insights today. Thank you, Greg. It was great to be here. Thanks for listening to episode one of season three of Streaming Income. Remember to subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts or Spotify so that you are the first to hear about our latest episodes. Thanks again for listening and see you next time.